Okay, let me go ahead and get started here. Says the uh, crowd will be here soon. Maybe. (laughs) Sunday after Thanksgiving, yeah. Everybody's got a little extra turkey that they're slow. Let me pray for us. God, thanks for uh, the opportunity to gather today for your word, your grace, uh, for this uh, season of thanks. And I ask that we would uh, gain from you uh, uh, insights to change our life from the inside out and uh, be saved from this futility of life to the glory of life that you have for us in this manner that you've laid out for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we got, we got here, we were talking about Jesus as the ministry of Melchizedek. And we are in Hebrews chapter uh, 7 last, uh, last week. And we saw that Jesus is the Son, and He's also the High Priest, the Son being the, this uh, title of royalty or authority, and the High Priest being this ministry of uh, intercession. And we saw that He's a, a priest by the Word of God. We saw in 7.20 through 21, the Lord has sworn, and we went through and looked at the Word and how the Word is all these different things to us. And one of the things it is is uh, the <clears throat> determinant that Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And of course we saw that it's a continuous ministry forever that He ministers continually for us, and it's something that's not going to cease. And we saw that it's a transcendent thing. In 7.22 it says, By so much more Jesus has become the surety of a better covenant. So we've got a better covenant by this Melchizedek high priest. We started this session, uh, or sorry, this section looking at chapter 5. Let's just review that for a minute, kind of get our heads back into uh, the flow of the thought here. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God. They may offer both gifts and sacrifices. So he's talking about this high priestly service. And of course, we're talking to uh, the Apostle Paul, talking to his dear friends who are all Jewish believers. Uh, So they're all obviously very, um, very... uh, uh, familiar with this, it would have been something they continued to do, and we've gone over that in detail in Acts. That uh, we've shown that uh, uh, Paul himself continued to practice Judaism and all of its uh, features all the way through his life, as did uh, most most uh, as did the Jewish Christians in general. And then he goes to uh, in chapter uh, five, verse nine. He says, "And having been perfected, talking about Jesus." This is this word teleosi, or teleoso, I can't remember how you pronounce it, the telescope word. He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And again, we're talking here in this book, the context is eternal salvation is this lasting salvation which in, it, it, with the emphasis on restoring all of creation to its proper spot, including us to our appropriate spot as servant kings. And that part of it only happens if we obey Him. 
called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. So we're talking about Jesus and his priestly ministry of, of um, service as according to the order of Melchizedek. And the introduction to this whole explanation of Jesus with his priestly ministry according to the order of Melchizedek is, this is hard to explain only for one reason. What's the reason it's hard to explain? You've got come dull of hearing. Okay, you you need you need to get the wax out of your ears so I can explain this. Now he's going to then uh, talk about Melchizedek all through chapter six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. In six, you might recall he says, "And this we will do if God permits." What's this? We're going to move from elementary things to advanced things. We're going to move from. Uh, baptisms and washings and repentance from dead works and and eternal salvation. That's elementary. We're going to move to understanding Jesus as a high priest according to Melchizedek, if God permits. Now, why would God not permit? Because if we know what the right thing to do is and don't do it, the window of repentance closes, as it did for the children of Israel who tested God ten times in the wilderness. And eventually God says, that's it. You can't have the inheritance. He did not disown them as children. He, they lost their inheritance. Okay? And this is the basic picture that Paul gives to us as we go through this 6, 7, 8. So last week we went in and looked at chapter 7. And we saw Melchizedek, high priest, According to the Word of God, it was continuous, it was transcendent. And all of this, of course, it goes back to the context of chapter 2, which says, Do not neglect so great a salvation, which was spoken by the Word of Jesus, the, high, the Son and the High Priest. Uh, so we, we, we don't want to neglect this Word because it's so damaging to us to neglect. He wants to make us a servant king. He wants to raise us back to this point where we have the glory and honor of, of uh, uh, reigning over the creation. And that's one of the great rewards of a faithful life. And it's something that you can throw away. Okay, so today what I want to do is just start with the end in mind a little bit. I want, to, I want you to see what the punchline is since it takes a while to get there. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 19. And this is where, in chapter 10, verse 19, this is where he has a punchline of talking about Jesus as the high priest of Melchizedek. This is the hard to explain part. And this is where we're headed. I think we'll get there next week. So chapter, nine, uh, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren... Now remember, these are all brethren. Their, their salvation in the sense of justification is never in doubt. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Why is it we can enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus? He is the high priest with a better sacrifice. By new and living way, which he, Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil... That is his flex. The veil here is a reference to the tabernacle that had a veil between the inner court and the Holy of Holies. And he talks in chapter uh, 9 and 10, we'll see it, that there's a real tabernacle in heaven. Uh, The one on earth was a copy of the one in heaven. And the real one in heaven was just the same thing. 
And, and Jesus took that veil away. His veil is his flesh, which was the better sacrifice. And having a high priest over the, the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having, number one, our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and number two, our bodies washed with pure water. Number three, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Number four, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as the day approaches. So this is where we're headed. This is what maturity is. This is what the uh, ministry of Jesus as high priest does for us. It gives us a clean heart. It cleanses our conscience. Does anybody here ever have any trouble with guilt? Does anybody here look back on something that you've done and, and with great regret? Well, we all have, I think. This is, this is a place to have that cleansed. And not, not by doing anything here on earth necessarily, although the scripture tells us confess your sins to one another. And uh, there are things we should do. It tells people we're sorry and so forth. But real cleansing happens when we boldly approach the throne of grace, the holiest, by the blood of Jesus. The conf- and our bodies washed with pure water. See, our bodies actually get cleansed from the inside out. When our conscience is clear, then our bodies become cleansed. We hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What is that hope? The hope is that all of our greatest desires and longings, everything we want to be, all of, all of the hopes and dreams we have will actually be fulfilled. And Jesus has said, if you'll follow my way, what you really want will happen. These appetites that we have that fool us into thinking that's what we really want, they're actually a huge distraction. And the way we, what that leads to then is stirring up and together we do love and good works. And it all happens from the inside out. So that, that's where we're headed here with this whole uh, discussion of Jesus as Melchizedek. So let's go back to uh, chapter uh, 8. And what we're going to see here, is we're going to see three things as we go through and look at this new covenant that we saw in 722. By so much more, Jesus has become surety or the guarantee of a better covenant. And that's what we're going to start talking about here, a new covenant. And the new covenant has three components. We're going to see these over and over again. It has a a better sacrifice, a better priestly service, and a new heart. A better sacrifice, a better priestly service, and a new heart. We're going to see this really over and over. Okay, chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. And he's about to summarize 6 and 7 here. This is the main point. We have such a high priest. Now, if you're a Jew and you think of a high priest, <clears throat> what does high priest do for you on a daily basis? What's the benefit? Cleansing, okay. It's an access to God sort of a thing, right? So if you think, well, we have this kind of a high priest and he gives you access to God, what's the point? 
would you not want to take advantage of it, right? Why, why would you want to neglect this deliverance? Going back to chapter 2, verse 3. Do not neglect this salvation. Again, salvation is, is a word that requires context. You can save money, you can save meatloaf after it's left over. You know, it's, it's, it means delivered from something. And in this chapter, we're being delivered from death into life in its full completion, not just the new birth. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So if you have uh, the king of the universe, and that's what Jews think of God as king of the universe, and seated seated by the right hand of the king of the universe is someone who will intercede for you, it's obvious what needs to happen. We need to take advantage of it. Chapter 8, verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. You know, the Jews had the tabernacle in the wilderness, and at this point in time, they still have the temple in Jerusalem functioning. It's going to be a few years before it's torn down by Titus of the Romans, and it hasn't been built since, although today there's a whole reconstruction of the temple effort happening. Uh, It'll be one of the more controversial things to happen toward the end of time here. Um, so the true tabernacle is in heaven and we'll see that next week there's actually a copy the the thing they did in the wilderness is a copy of that in heaven the Lord erected that verse 3 for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices so what do priests do? they offer gifts and sacrifices idolatry is generally offering a priest Money, so he will sacrifice and offer gifts to a false god so you can get what you want. And again, if we're going to be approaching this high priest, and we're going to do so in a way to get something that's not in our best interest, it's not really going to go well. This high priest wants what's in our best interest. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, this high priest, also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In other words, the blueprint of the tabernacle was given to Moses by God. And Jesus is not a earthly minister. If he was, he would still be on earth. He's not. So there's a true tabernacle in heaven and a true priest in heaven. And the Levitical priests and the uh, tabernacle of the uh, Old Testament are both copies of the real. Verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, this new covenant. So you've got a better priest and a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Now, fault by faultless here, I think he means that it works, that it achieved the desired result. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. In other words, it didn't work. 
I had one covenant and it didn't, didn't accomplish the results. So I'm going to do a better one. And I disregarded them. Now we're going to go into great detail on what this means. I disregarded them. We'll come back to that. Says the Lord, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So what was wrong with the first covenant? Was it, was it that the law was inadequate? No, the law wasn't inadequate. The law is good. What was the problem? The people didn't continue in it. The people didn't change. And the new covenant is to take that law that was, that was perfect and put it in the heart. You know, Romans 8, Paul says, if we walk in the Spirit, we fulfill the law. So this outside-in sort of thing that we always try to do, and, and I talked last week about like the income tax where the, the, the total receipts are the same no matter what they, how they change the laws and the rates and everything. You know, people have a desire in their heart and they just figure out a way around the laws to get what they want. It's generally how it works. And he's saying that doesn't really get us where we want to go. I want to put their laws in their heart so they become who I want them to be. That's the better covenant. I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete... And growing old is ready to vanish away. Alright, so we've got a lot here to chew on. A new covenant that has the law in the hearts. Now, obviously, we have not gotten to the point where there's no need for teaching anymore. Everybody agree with that? Uh, we have not gotten to the point where everyone knows the Lord at this point in time. So, this new covenant... F- ultimate fulfillment is yet in the future. But he is not wanting us to wait until in the future to take advantage of this new covenant. And as the scripture takes place in general, we have ultimate promises that will be tangibly fulfilled in the new earth or the millennial kingdom. And God wants us to have those promises in large part through faith now. The walk of faith now gives us the opportunity to, um, to uh, enjoy the benefits of those promises now and prepare us to have maximum benefit of those promises when they become tangible in the future. And we're going to have the same thing here. But what I want to do is go back. This verse 10 here is a quote from the Old Testament. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I'll put the laws in my mind and write them in the hearts. And if you look over to uh, chapter 10, we're going to um, have that same verse... Uh, quoted again, chapter 10, verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I'll write them on, on them. Then he adds, their sin and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. So this is a big point he's making. He's, he's actually quotes this um, part of the Old Testament twice. So what I want to do for the rest of our time today is go back into the Old Testament so we get the full context of this Jeremiah 
uh, quote here. Uh, I will write my laws in their hearts. And also the background of the old covenant not working and God saying, I disregarded them. Because remember here, we're writing this to Jewish believers. And these Jewish believers understand this context. and, And Paul is writing here into this context where they're understanding. So to get the impact the way these guys would have gotten it, we really have to see through their eyes to some extent go to this Old Testament passages. I disregarded them, chapter 8, verse 9. So let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30. And we will start looking at the... um, uh, Deuteronomy. We're going to start with Deuteronomy. So we're going to start with the part that says, I disregarded them when they didn't follow me. And then we're going to end up with Jeremiah. Okay, because this is a whole... We're going to go through about uh, a thousand years of history here in just a few minutes. So Deuteronomy, remember, we um, are coming out of the wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses is giving the charge to the nation before they before he hands over the mantle of leadership to Joshua and they go across the Jordan River and into the uh, promised land and possess their possession possess the inheritance so that's Deuteronomy here so we are back at you know 1500 BC something like that right now chapter 30 of Deuteronomy Now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among you all the nations which the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and all your soul, the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. Okay, we're kind of starting in something midstream here, but can you see what's happening? God says, I've given you blessings and cursings. Now, now, what, what did God give as blessings and cursings to the nation of Israel? How did that generally work? Yeah, it's consequences, right? If you do what I say, you're going to get the tremendous benefits. And if you don't do what I say, you're going to get really adverse consequences to that. And then he says, and I know you're going to choose the adverse consequences. And when you do, you're going to really be sorry. And then you're going to repent and come back to me. And when you do, I'm going to restore you. Okay, that's, that's kind of the context of this whole passage here. Uh, let's look at 30 verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious to you. This is actually the... The main argument of Romans we're about to get into. Romans chapter 10 actually quotes this passage that we're about to to talk about here. This commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It's not in heaven that you say, who will ascend into heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. In other words, you don't need an angel to come explain this to you. Uh, nor is it beyond the sea, you should say, he'll go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. In other words, you don't need a missionary or, or a consultant or a, uh, an expert to come explain this to you. Why? Because the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may do it. This is actually in Romans chapter 10. This is Paul's argument of what the really, the, the crux of what walking righteousness is. To walk, you know, the righteous shall walk by faith, the just shall live by faith. 
Well, walking by faith, living by faith starts in the heart. He's actually making the same argument in Hebrews. He's just doing it to a Jewish audience. It starts in the heart. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies we do or how much devotional time we spend or how, how early in the morning we get up, how many people are worse than us, uh, how many mission trips we go on, all of which are good things. What matters is the heart. From the heart comes righteousness, not from rules and laws. That's kind of the big point of all this. So let's look at 31, uh, 9 through 14. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that he may hear, and that he may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. And their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Okay? So this idea of having the law in your heart is not anything new. That's what God wants us to do now. That's what he wanted the children of Israel to do. Uh, the, the difference will be when it's actually written there by God. And that's yet to happen in the future. We have the opportunity by faith to place it there. And the benefits are immense. It, it's unimaginable what the benefits of that are. And that's, that's the point. The benefits are incredible. That's the blessing. And the detriment is enormous. What we get instead is the world. And the world system brings death. And that's really the point of Romans. It's the point of Hebrews. It's trying to get us to see with the eyes of faith. Okay? So there's the background. So now let's look at uh, verse 14, chapter uh, Deuteronomy 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourself in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. Now just as a little aside here, what is God's view of death here? Is he really torn up about this? Doesn't seem to be, does he? You know, uh, death is a welcome to God. It's, it's part of a continuation. Obviously, it's an enemy. It's an enemy to be dis, dispensed. It's the last enemy that will be vanquished. Jesus had to die in order to be, defeat that enemy. So it's nothing to be taken lightly. Jesus wept when uh, Lazarus died. So obviously, it's not natural. But I think uh, in large part, God, from God's perspective, he knew Moses before. He's going to know Moses after. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot of the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them, then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. Okay, So that is 
That is the background of what we're about to go into in Jeremiah a thousand years later. Now, the, the Jeremiah a thousand years later is like uh, not the only time this happened. It's the big, big, big time. Uh, let's go ahead and look at chapter uh, 31, verse 20 first, though. When I brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they've eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. You know, there's, uh, circumstances are really neutral. We tend to think of trials as difficult times when we're not getting what we want. But the book of James doesn't look at it that way. It says, let the lowly man glory in his exaltation, and let the rich glory in his humiliation. And then it goes on to talk about the rich for some period of time. And really, when our circumstances are great is when we have the greatest trial. Because what do we tend to think when everything's going our way? Yeah, I did it all. <laughs> Look at me, I'm wonderful. Uh, and it creates self-dependence, the illusion of self-dependence, which is just a non-reality. All circumstances are a trial, and it's an opportunity to trust God either way. So, um, he's, but he's saying here, when, when, they, when they have real positive circumstances, they're going to forsake me. And then he teaches them a song, and chapter 32 is a, is a song. The whole song is about what's going to happen to you when you disobey. I, I would love to put this song to music in a modern term. That would, uh, would be really interesting. Uh, and I'll just give you a few... Uh, highlights here. Look at verse 23. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They will be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I don't know what kind of tune that would be too, Luke. Can you kind of like, uh, they will heap disasters on them. Maybe this is heavy metal. <laughs> they will heap disasters on them. So that's what this whole thing, look at verse 28. For they are a nation void of counsel. Nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this. God, we have no, we have no wisdom. God, we are so empty-headed. You know, I, 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 I don't know what tune. Maybe that'd be a country-western kind of a song, you know. They are a nation void of counsel. Uh, that they would consider their latter end. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? The Lord had surrendered them. Their rock is not our, like our rock. Uh, look down in verse uh, 32. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamities at hand and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge His people. And have compassion on his servants when he sees their powers gone and there's no one remaining bond or free. So the Lord is going to allow these disasters to happen, but when they do, what's he going to do? He's going to have mercy on them and bring them back. Why? He's just not trying to smash them. He's trying to cultivate them, to grow them, to disciple them. And this is how you do it, with experience of cause and effect. Now, interestingly enough, as a little aside... This verse 32, vengeance is mine and I will recompense. Sorry? Verse 35, sorry, vengeance is mine, I will recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. Obviously from the context I've given you, that's saying that the people of God, those who are elect and chosen, are eventually going to do some bad things. And when they do, negative consequences are going to transpire. So they will learn and come back, right? This was the proof text for Jonathan Edwards' 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. Totally taken out of context. It's not talking about that God is dangling you over a fire like a spider and gleefully letting you roast. And the only thing that keeps him from doing it is uh, some sort of a spark of, of uh, kindness that he takes you out. This is talking about a loving father spanking his children for doing something that's self-destructive. Well, this happens. A thousand years later, 586 B.C., uh, the culmination, of course it happens a lot all through the Old Testament. You can see the, during the ju- time of the judges, the, they go through this cycle where they disobey God and then they're taken over by somebody and then they have a judge come up and they turn back after they turn back to God and then the judge delivers them. They go through this cycle over and over again and they have various wars and things. So it's, it's not, it's not uh, uh, unknown to them. But the big culmination of it happens... In 586 B.C., the, the, uh, king, the southern kingdom, Judah, from which we get the word Jew, has split off from Israel uh, uh, years before. And Israel has gone away. In 722, Israel was taken captivity by Assyria. And those ten tribes disappear. We, we don't ever know where they go. Uh, history, they're lost to history. They're known to God, but lost to history. And Judah's left, which is the tribes of Benjamin and uh, Judah. And in 586, the Babylonians come. And Jeremiah is the prophet that's telling people how to avoid getting uh, smashed by the uh, Babylonians. So let's go to Jeremiah. Let's see what chapter we at. Jeremiah, let's start in verse eight, uh, chapter 18. This is a real fascinating book. If, if, if you know the, the history, it's really, uh, it's really something. And the context of Jeremiah is that Jeremiah is, is uh, in, in part of this book, Jeremiah is prophesying how to avoid disaster from being uh, taken over by the Babylonians. And part of it is him prophesying. Uh, part of it's the history of what happens. And then part of it is <clears throat> him talking about it after the captivity have taken place. Now, what the Babylonians did <clears throat> is they came in and, and sieged Jerusalem, starved the people out. And <clears throat> people were like uh, eating, eating dead people and uh, eating their own excrement and so forth. This is... Was part of what's set forth in, in this that was really it was really disastrous. There were hundreds of thousands of people that died during this time period. And so in chapter eighteen we're leading up to that event. And this is a kind of a famous chapter. Let's look at eighteen verse one. The Lord word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. Now you've probably seen a potter making a pot, and what did they do? the ancient way of making it. They're on a wheel. The pot's on a wheel. What do they do? They just put water on the pot, and then what do, what do they do with the pot? They just, sh- yeah, they just shape it with their hands, right? And how, how do they decide what, to, what shape to make? They just do. They just decide, right? How much input does the pot have? None. Okay, so that's the point here. 
Arise and go down to the potter's house, and I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel. In other words, he's making something, didn't like it, so he just goes clump and puts it back in a, in a wad again and then starts making something different. Okay, you get, you get that illustration? And he says... Um, Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck it up, pull it down, destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and plant it, if it does evil in my sight so it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I would said to benefit it. You get the point? I, I'm in control here. And those consequences that I've set forth the way the world works, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see that those come to pass. But there's cause effect. If you do what I ask you to do, there's going to be immense blessing. And if you do... What I, what's opposite of that, there's going to be tremendous negative consequences, guys. In verse 12, and they said, this is the people hearing Jeremiah's voice, they said, this is hopeless, that is hopeless. We don't want to hear that. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of our evil heart. We want our way. We don't want to hear, well, what you have to say there, Jeremiah, that's, that's, that's not kind. That's not nice. That doesn't make us have self-esteem. That, do, that doesn't make us feel warm. We don't want to put any offering in the plates when you say that. So we'll just do what we want to do. So they disregarded it. Let's go to chapter 19. God's not finished. He's going to give them multiple opportunities. You know, Before the window closes for repentance, He gives multiple opportunities. Thus says the Lord. He's talking to Jeremiah again. Go and get a potter's earthen flask. This time we've got an earthen flask that's already made. And take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now this is uh, known in the New Testament as Gehenna. Unfortunately, it's, often, it's usually translated, I think it's always translated hell. So he's saying go out to hell. Uh, if you if you did the same thing that you did in the New Testament, but it's an actual physical place. Uh, Jerusalem's kind of a, like a, a, a snow cone. It's a triangular shaped hill, and on one side is the Kidron Valley, on the other side is the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, still to this day, well, every town on the downwind side, that's where you put all the dead stuff and all the that's all the sewage went there, and uh, that that was the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, and this uh, Gehenna. And they, they also, in this Gehenna, would, uh, when they went into idolatry, that's where they did the practice, the child sacrifice and all the sort of horrific things that were there. So this image of dead, burning worms, constant fire, smoldering, this is the image the Bible uses frequently about the consequences of sin. So you have to use from context the consequences of sin, whether that's now or whether that's in the future, and it can't apply to anybody. It doesn't necessarily mean the lake of fire, although it can. 
and go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entry of the potsherd gate, one of the gates in Jerusalem, and proclaim there the words I will tell you, verse 3, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will tingle. Uh, this is not sort of how to win friends and influence people. This is the truth. Your, your, your actions have consequences, guys. And this is what's about to happen if you don't do what I'm going to tell you to do. And basically the whole thing in this whole Jeremiah is they had made a, a covenant with uh, Babylon. The, the nation of Israel had made a covenant with Babylon, a treaty we would call it. And they were in the process of breaking that treaty because Egypt told them that they would protect them. And God says, don't do it. Honor your treaty with Babylon. Don't trust in the Egyptians. If you do, you're going to get smacked. Don't do it. Honor that treaty. Don't trust in the Egyptians. I always told you, don't trust Egyptians. Don't do it. Don't do it. They do it. Whack. They get, they get invaded. And then he goes on to say, this whole valley is going to be filled with dead bodies. That's what's about to come on you. Which is exactly what happened in the, this catastrophe of the Babylonians sacking the city. And destroying the temple, by the way. This is the first time the temple was destroyed. Uh, it was a catastrophe. Now, that is the context for chapter 29, which has this very famous passage that's the uh, bumper sticker and... St- stitching thing. Many of you might have this in your house. And this is the context for uh, chapter 29. Look, Look at verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders which were carried away captive. So now we've gone from, Je- from Jeremiah uh, warning the nation how to avoid the catastrophe and now he's advising the nation on what to do after the catastrophe. Uh, The catastrophe is that many were deported to Babylon. Many died, and most of who was left were deported to Babylon. And he says, let's go verse 9, They prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, After seventy years are completed at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go pray to me and I will listen to you. You know, this this, uh, is a real friendly and happy uh, verse. We all love to quote it. The context of it is it is in the middle of a total catastrophe that God warned them of and they chose for themselves. Now, let's look at 31, 23. We're about to get to the quote that we've been running up to. So you get that you're in 1500 B.C. God puts out these blessings and cursings. Uh, we have seen the blessings and cursings Uh, take place all through the Jewish history. And finally we get to a point where it culminates in the destruction of the temple, the extraction of the people from the land, and the placement in Babylon.
So let's look at 31, start in uh, 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, They shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. Remember, they're going to go to Babylon. How long are they going to stay? Seventy years. Interestingly enough, God says, the reason I picked 70 years was what? Anybody remember? It had been 490 years since they had given the land a rest. Every seven years they're supposed to leave the land fallow and give it a rest. And he said, I'm taking my rest for the land. I'm getting all 70 years at once. Just one of the many things you didn't do to obey me, that's how I picked 70 years. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and all of its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks. Now, why is that important? Well, there aren't any right now. This place has been decimated. For I have satiated the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. After this I awoke and looked around, and my sleep was sweet to me. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it, you know, this, the land is unpopulated now. I'm going, to bring, I'm going to bring animals and people back. And it shall come to pass that I've, as I've watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy, to afflict, so I'll watch over them to build and plant. I'm, gonna, I'm going to repopulate this land. In those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There was this ancient thing that we see in Job all the way through that uh, what you do on earth makes God uh, bless you or not bless you. And it's all not heart things, it's external things. And he says they're not going to say that anymore. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Verse 31. This is the verse that we saw in Hebrews. So now you're getting the full context of where this verse comes from. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, interestingly enough, this new covenant that he's going to bring is disconnected from the bringing of the people back to the land this particular time. How do we know that? How do we know it? They were deported to Babylon. They were brought back 70 years later. What happened? And, and where are we? Did, what happened after that? 70 AD, what happened? Jerusalem was crushed again. And they, and they were dispersed again. The nation, the nation was not a, a nation again until 1948. When the UN cast the one and only pro-Israel vote it's ever cast. And by one vote... They voted to make nation, uh, Israel a nation out of response to the Holocaust. So, I will put my laws in their minds. Sorry, let's see, I've, I've skipped ahead. 32, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. 
and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So, so this is the context of Hebrews. Let's just go back to Hebrews. Chapter 8. So you can see this quote in verse 10. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor. None his brothers saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember those, those no more. And that he says a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now the context of that is goes back to verse 9, which is, Not according to the covenant I made with the fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So just to review, year 1500 B.C., and Moses comes out, brings the children of Israel. You know, Charlton Heston brings the children out of uh, the land of Israel. They go to the mountain. They do all that stuff. They, they, they try God ten times. He finally says, you can't, you can't go in. So you got numbers where they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They actually experience this cause-effect thing during that time period, some, but, but not to a, the degree that they experience it later. And then they go uh, in, in before the land, and you have Deuteronomy, and Moses uh, gives them the Deuteronomy, gives them the command the second time. And Joshua takes them in. They take the land. They only partially take the land. They allow the Canaanites and other people to stay, which ends up being a stumbling block to them. But they have the law. There's a couple of generations that are faithful. And they go into the period of Judges. They go through this cycle of of, um, disobedience, repentance, deliverance which is, again, this cause-effect thing happening. And then they ask for a king, which God didn't want them to do at that point in time, but they get one. So they get a good king, a bad king followed by a good king. David becomes the prototype of a good king, a man after God's own heart. Because the prototype is somebody that has a heart for God. And then you go through this whole period of the kings. And uh, the, they, in Rehoboam, they split. The northern and southern kingdom split. 722, the Assyrians take the northern kingdom out. We never see those guys again. And 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and completely decimates the um, kingdom. And who's left? They deport to Babylon. And this, so Israel's empty for 70 years. They bring them back. Ezra and Nehemiah bring them back. And that's pretty much the history of the Old Testament that, this, that Paul has encompassed here, all the way from or the, of the, of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, all the way from Egypt to Babylon. And what he's saying here is the covenant that, that, uh, that uh, administered that whole time period was insufficient. It was insufficient because it wasn't written on people's hearts. So there's coming a time when we're going to have a full fulfillment of this. And actually, this is a promise to the house of Israel, which we are grafted into by virtue of faith. Okay, So this time is coming when we get a full fulfillment. Meanwhile, why don't we take advantage 
of that very same thing which we can do by faith. We can enter the holiest of holies in heaven. Not, not just the Levitical priest once a year going in to sprinkle. You, me, we can enter the holy holies ourselves when we go before God in prayer. When we go before God in our hearts. And when we face God there, we can have our conscience cleansed. Cleansed. Why can we have our conscience cleansed? Because that high priest has given a better sacrifice once for all. For all time. And there's nothing we can do that is better than that sacrifice. We can't out that sacrifice. I think one of the reasons we have guilt is because we have pride that what we've done is better than what Jesus did for us. And we can say, look, look at what I did. You can't overcome this. Well, no, He can and has. He's overcome every sin. And we can approach and say, I am dirty. I have an unclean mouth. And He gives us comfort by burning our lips off with a piece of coal. It hurts, but it cleanses. A better priest, a better sacrifice, and a new heart. That's, that's what we're after here. So you see these Jews who had, had this orientation towards uh, external compliance had started drifting away from uh, the new heart back towards external compliance. And what Paul's saying here is, that's a dead end, guys. And I think the challenge to us is to examine ourselves and ask, what is it we do that we rely on to justify ourselves? To say, I'm okay because... And how do, we, how do we say, well, I must be doing okay? And set that aside and, say, and, and uh, instead approach this throne of grace to find help to time and need. So next week, what we're going to do is really dig into this, this uh, tabernacle in heaven and what Jesus is actually doing for us there and, and get into the part where we can, I think, see with our mind's eye what he, what's actually transpiring there. I think, I think you'll find it to be really unbelievable. God, thank you for visiting us. Thank you for your grace and care, for this ministry that you have of a better priesthood and a better sacrifice, for this great history of this nation that you've given us to learn from. God, that we may choose life. In Jesus' name, amen.